been partnering with uh, C3 Adelaide Hills and uh, going over and building some houses in Fiji for C3 Gateway Nandi. And we've been working with Adelaide Hills in doing that. And we've invited um, the Fiji brothers over here to see a little bit about what we do and see where we've come from and learn some of our ways. We've been over there having an awesome time with them. Um, I'm going to ask them to come up right now. Why don't you come and stand up here and face everybody. This is Sam. Sam is... You will have all seen over, or those that have been here have seen the pictures that we've shown you of Paula and Fani, who are the pastors of C3 Gateway. Sam is Paula's son. Paula and Fani's son, I should say. <laughs> it is both. And I, and I told him yesterday, I hadn't noticed so much in Fiji, but he's, he's like, he's sighing. He's like, oh, do you have to say this? But I said to him yesterday, gee, you look like your dad. I hadn't thought that so much when I was in Fiji, but seeing him here out of context, I suppose, I looked at him and I thought, gee, you look very like your dad. But there you go. That's just a, you know. I, not, I, I notice here, I notice here on your, your list, you haven't asked the, the most important question. Are you What's guys that? single? It's <laughs> <laughs> not on here. I, I haven't even introduced Epps yet. Let's, let's do that. I can't, I can't, how do you actually say your, your full name? Eparama. Eparama. We call him Epps. Because <laughs> I might not say it correctly. Anyway, it's, it's fantastic to have you both here. Now, they, their church meets um, in a school and under the veranda of the school. And I think some of you have seen the photos that we've shown of that in the past. So they have to come in every Sunday and set up. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what time that starts and what you do? Yeah, we usually set up 7 o'clock in the morning on Sunday. Yeah, oh. In a veranda. <laughs> Sometimes just me and Sam and Pastor Paula just helping out. Always load the stuff from home, all the instruments and chairs, and it'll be kind of three load. So, yeah. so where do all, where do all the chairs come from? At home. From they all come from home. Okay. We got all the stuff in the grants. <laughs> yeah. Every Sunday morning, being set up and after church and pick up, getting back. Another three run home. <laughs> yeah. Three three runs to get everything to church, chairs included, have to be brought in starting at 7 o'clock in the morning. Who's volunteering? <laughs> I don't see one single hand. Come on, people. I will grant you it is a lot warmer there at 7 o'clock in the morning than it is yes. here, correct? <laughs> it's much more pleasant. Um, what else have I got written down here? Uh, what about connect groups? You have connect groups in your church. Do you want to tell us a bit about where you meet and how often you meet? Yeah, there are a number of connect groups in the church. Well, they usually meet uh, on a, in a week, uh, Thursdays and Wednesdays. That's uh, some connect groups they meet on Thursdays, some other connect groups on Wednesdays. But every Sunday, Sunday afternoon, like uh, there's. Instead of having, we used to have uh, afternoon services last year, but uh, this year we've kind of changed that around. 
we have uh, connect groups having their own services in their own districts. So our connect groups are based on the community, like where you live, the, yeah, the districts, yeah. So, yeah. Ah, excellent. Okay, that's good, isn't it? What about um, on Sundays? Are you are either of you involved in the service? What do you do in terms of helping during the service? Um, for me, I do uh, sound and play the keys. Just put the mixer. You say me. Sound and keys. Lock the doors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and. Yeah, I'm in. I'm involved with the worship team too. I'm a. I'm a drummer, and uh, doubly lock the doors. I'm also part of uh, the, the the upcoming. Well, well we sort of like uh, developing a media team for C3 Fiji as a whole. I'm a graphic designer too. Yeah. So I heard there's a lot of graphic designers around. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> awesome. This is the right church for you here for graphic design. I, I, I think you need to come yeah. here. Yeah. I repeat my question. Are you guys single? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got an answer yet. <laughs> what about just last question maybe you'd like to share um, with us? Some of the differences that you've seen here or something that you've observed of the C3 Australian churches compared to C3 Gateway. Maybe there's something you've noticed or something you've seen that you'd, you'd like to share with us. Apart, f- apart from the fact that it's colder over here. Yeah, one thing I noticed is the technology stuff. Yeah, you guys are more advanced. <laughs> As I said, when I came yesterday, I looked at the sound desk. Oh, there's no sound mixer here. <laughs> and there's a small one. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, that's one thing I noticed. Advanced in that. Yeah, just like Epsi said, uh, there's a like big difference to the, the style you guys have. Uh, in terms of uh, equipment and all, we back at home, we're, we're pretty basic, but we manage to yeah, get things go, going. Uh, for C3 Norwood and C3 Gateway, there's a lot of similarities, like the size of the church and how you guys do things. It's uh, kind of like home, yeah. That that's awesome. I would I would say that I feel the same. That similar sort of size, similar feeling. Um, we have to set up and pack down as you do. Although our stuff stays here, you have to bring yours in, which is much nicer. And we have a bit more technology, but yeah. yours is coming. But you would say that your dance moves are probably better than ours. Yeah, I I wasn't going to ask for a demonstration, but their dance moves are pretty fantastic, and and the the Fijians do really get into their dancing and moving in church. We're not as good as they are. Let me tell you, it's much more exciting there. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. Pastor Chris is going to bring us the word now. It's all right. I'm mic'd up. Now, whoa. Sorry. Yes. This is God's speech. No. Now he's turned me off. Just talk amongst. No, I'm, oh, I'm back. Okay. 
Now, a couple of weeks ago, how, how good are your memories? Who's got a really good memory? I'm not going to ask you a question so you can, you can lie about your memory, it's all right. A couple of weeks ago, who remembers that Brendan actually preached? And he, he, he came up here, he hid behind a couple of lemon trees, and he tried to introduce us to the ridiculous idea that the gospel of grace that Jesus brought was not just for salvation. That it wasn't something that through unmerited favour we're allowed entry into the kingdom of God. He had the temerity, the audacity, the sheer cheek to suggest that this gospel of grace was useful for us as Christians to actually also grow in our faith and be involved in our walk with God once we were already saved. Preposterous. I mean, surely just getting saved was enough. We actually have to do stuff after we're saved. Who's surprised? I mean, come on. It was, who, who, it was just hard enough to get me saved. And something has to happen once I'm saved? That God has a plan for me above just going to heaven? Wow. So I thought, well, you might be right. I mean, Brendan has been right in the past, hasn't he? And I thought, well, Pat, let's, let's, let's check the Bible. And so I checked in the Bible. And I looked at Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. And I looked at it in the message version. I love the message version. You crazy Galatians! Did somebody put a hex on you? You can bring witchcraft into it straight away. Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened. For it's obvious you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. Paul's being a bit soft and lovey-dovey here. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. Let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Obviously not. Or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think that they could complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. Crazy people. No one here in this church is crazy, are they? No. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, now I know that you're all smart and strong. I'm not trying to upset anybody here. But if you weren't, strong enough or smart enough to begin it. How do you suppose you could perfect it? Did you go through all this painful learning process for nothing? It's not a total loss just yet, but it certainly will be if you keep this up. He's not pulling any punches here. He is, you can see he's, it's like he, he's just received this news about how they... They want to change the gospel message. And he's, it's rocked him back on his heels. It's like, I, I don't believe you people. And he says things, sometimes I'd love, I'd love to be able to say that to some people. Yeah, you, people outside the church. Um, you crazy people. You're bad. I, I would never want to say that to anybody in the church. Um, but, I, but I thought about this and I th- said, thought, why would anyone believe that something started by God could be finished in their own strength and their own understanding? And you said, and I thought about it, well, why would I? 
And do I? And you know, sometimes there's, there's a little bit of, bit of me that does, sort of thing. Might be good enough to just help God a bit. Nobody else has ever... Okay. It's just a failing of mine. That sometimes I slip up. And I, I thought about it and I thought, it's because of how we see the word growth. I mean, grow sits up there. And when we think of growth, we live in a society that thrives on growth. In fact, it thrives temporarily on unlimited growth. In today's growth market, there is no such thing as going backwards, is there? There's no such thing as stopping. I mean, once we plateau, that's no growth. When things are devalued, this is what amazes me about the stock exchange. If the value of stock goes down, people talk about the fact that people lose huge amounts of money. In reality, nobody's actually lost anything. It's just the theoretical value of what they might have had is, is less. So all this talk about loss and growth, it's all, it's all juggling. There's nothing real to any of it. But the trouble is that because that's our vision of growth, when God comes to us and he talks about how the, we need the gospel of grace, gospel of grace to grow in our lives, that's automatically the paradigm or the, the type of growth we look at. Because that's what our world is. We even read it in the Bible. James chapter 2, verse 14. says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, Goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well. Praise Jesus. And then do nothing to give that person food or clothing. What good does that do? And we read that. And because we're thinking of a growth paradigm that the world has shoved down our throats, <coughs> we, we, we reverse it and we think, God wants me to do good stuff. So if I do more good stuff, then my faith will increase. Because I'll, I'll have shown God that I'm a good person by doing lots of good stuff. And he will increase my faith because he's a faithful God. And so everybody will think I'm really holy because I'm doing lots of good stuff. Therefore, my faith must have increased. We've got this whole idea of feeding faith by the works instead of feeding works because of our faith. we're We're all messed up. I'll show you just how messed up we are. The prevailing growth view in our world is on a building model. And guess where this building model comes from? The Egyptians, very good, because guess what? It's a pyramid. Somebody's been looking at my notes. (laughs) And it goes something like this. Let's have a look at the first step on the pyramid. Here we have a a base, childhood. who, Who started off in childhood? No, some of you didn't, never mind. I know there are some of us who wish we didn't. But we start with our formative years. Our parents have input into our life. They teach us the basics. And this prepares us for the next level, which is education. And so we go out of our parents' care. We start our education. And our system prepares us for the next level, which is more education. And so our further education builds us into that important phase of our lives 
where we leave home. Oh, well, all right. We, we at least get a job, as leaving home doesn't seem to be high on the agenda anymore. So we become work-experienced. And so we build on our educational experience, we build on our childhood experience, and we get a job. And of course, what does work teach us? Teaches us all about the real world. We continue to build our life, putting what we learn in the workplace into use as the next step in a life of accumulated knowledge and experience until we reach that time in our lives when we can say we have life experience. This is when you become old and wise, of course. And the great thing is that when we combine life experience with our work experience, our educational experience and our childhood experience, we think we've come so far that we can move to the next level and call ourselves experts. Because now we're an expert on life. And because we're an expert on life, we expect people to revere us, bow down, hang on our every word, because of our accumulated wisdom and life experience. And the final step which everyone aspires to is to achieve that well-known pinnacle of the self-made success. There's so little room at the top. We forget about the people and experiences that got us here. And we start to believe our own crap about how good we are. And we become completely insufferable. And that's the pyramid of growth that the world aspires to. There is actually a Christian version of that, which I think is on the next slide, which is slightly different. Um, We start off as an apprentice sinner, we become a chronic sinner, and then if we're lucky we become an improving sinner, and then we get saved, and the whole world is rosy, and guess what? We discover the word of God, so we become a devourer of the word. And then we discover prayer, we become a prayer warrior, and then because we've worked so hard at these things, we become a spiritual guru. which is, of course, the pinnacle of Christian expression. We know, who knows somebody who is holier than thou? So heavenly bound, they're no earthly good. And th- th- that's the, the sort of paradigm that our world teaches us to actually come for. Can anybody see what's wrong with that model of growth? Can anybody see only one thing? I can see many. The first, of, first thing, of course, it's all about our effort, not God's. The second thing is, it stops at the top. God's idea of growth doesn't stop. The third thing is, it's indiscriminate. Notice that each layer is built on everything on the layer before. There is no indication that there might be some things on some layers that you should chuck out. Some things that you should forget and not build on. Some things that perhaps shouldn't be there in your life as a basis for what you do today. And the fourth thing is, it's open to comparison. My pyramid is taller than your pyramid. My pyramid is wider than your pyramid. Mine has more steps. Mine's more colourful. Mine's pointier. Whatever it is... Oh, no, I won't ask. See, God uses words when he talks about growth that don't work with this model. Words like rest... Words like fruitfulness. Where does that come in? Words like remain in me. Words like pruning. Did I sense a deep unease when I mentioned that word? Seasons. There's another word. 
So we can see from this that the growth model that God has planned for us is quite different to the one we think he has. And we ignore this godly growth at our peril. And yet it seems unnatural to us because it doesn't meet our worldview. How strange is that? Fancy God not meeting our worldview. Strange. So let me ask you a question. If you look at the tree in the next picture, is this tree growing? Well, let me put you out of your misery. It's a bit hard to tell. It could have lost its leaves for winter. It could be dead. You can't tell because a visual inspection at this distance is inconclusive. It could be dead, couldn't it? You just can't tell. How about the next one? That's a bit more obvious, isn't it? There's green on it. So, as a consensus, we'd say it was growing, right? But it looks a bit sparse, doesn't it? Perhaps it's not growing that well. What about the next one? Oh, okay. So, we were wrong. The tree seems to be all right. It's growing really, really well, isn't it? So, everything, everything's going well. You happy with that? What about the next one? Uh-oh. The leaves are dying. Is there something wrong with this tree? And guess what happens next? Let's have a look at the next one. They've all gone again. The leaves have left. It's a bit like going bald, except they don't come back. (laughs) Now, can you see? Now, this is God's model of growth. Can you see that it differs significantly from the worldview of growth? For instance, let me ask you: if if you want to just quickly flick through that cycle again. Morella, did that tree appear to get any taller during that cycle? No. Did it get any wider? No. So it didn't actually get any bigger, but God tells us that it's growing. God's lying. That can't be right, can it? It doesn't fit with our idea of growth. Something growing has to get bigger, taller, wider, longer, whatever, doesn't it? But that's not God's idea. See, God has a totally different view of growth to the one the world has. And if we want to be part of God's growth plan, we actually have to change how we view growth. And I'm here to tell you it's not easy because the world is throwing something at us which is actually opposed to what God is doing. John Chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus encapsulates God's idea of growth succinctly and clearly in this passage of Scripture. He says, I am the true grapevine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, 
You may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. Now that doesn't sound like pyramidal growth to me. What I showed you on the screen there happens naturally. It's sort of what we take, nature does that sort of thing. We don't have to do anything about that. The seasons come and go and trees do that automatically. And that's a cycle of growth. But you see, Jesus has taken it one step further here. He tells us that for our sake, his father has taken on the role of the gardener. Now, I don't know about you, but in our own lives, we like to think we're the gardener. We like to think, we know, we determine who gets pruned, what gets pruned out of my life. We determine how fruitful we are. We determine what goes on in my life, because we're boss. I'm in charge, you know, large and in charge. Hopefully not so large, but still in charge. And we hate the idea that somebody else might be in charge. And yet it says here that Jesus is the vine and his father is the gardener. And guess who prunes? The gardener. The vine doesn't say, oh, I think I'll drop this branch off here because I feel it's about right. The pruner comes around. I don't know whether you've ever pruned vines. But vines grow quite massive during the summer. But when the pruners are finished with them, they're back to a tiny shrub. Because what's the output for growth mentioned in that passage of Scripture? Fruit. God's end result for, for growth is fruitfulness. It's not how tall you are. It's not how many flowers you've got. It's not how green your leaves are. It's not how prickly your branches, how tall the trunk, how whatever. It's the fruitfulness that determines whether you're growing or not. And so, our fruitfulness is actually in God's hands. It's actually whether we're humble enough to let God do the gardening that determines our potential to bear fruit. It's nothing in our strength. This is where the grace comes back in. In that we actually have to be humble enough to let God continue working in our lives and recognize that it's not our strength, it's not our skill, it's God's grace that enables us to grow. And guess what? In that life cycle, some of those parts of that cycle, you couldn't tell from the outside whether it was growing or not, could you? It wasn't obvious that growth was going on, but there were times of rest. How often as, as Christians have we felt guilty because we've entered a time that where we don't appear to be physically, mentally or emotionally useful in somebody else's life or in the life of the church or whatever. And we feel guilty. Because we're all doers. We like to be doing things. We're not human doings, we're human beings. Yeah, it's an old one, never mind. And, but there are obviously some parts of God's cycle where there is a, a necessity for rest. That you, have, you, you don't prune branches that are bearing fruit. You prune them once they've borne the fruit so that they can bear fruit again. We're not actually designed to bear fruit all the time. We look at, our, we look at people and say, well, they're not being fruitful. Well, 
They're in the middle of winter in their growth cycle. They're husbanding their energy. They're ready to spring out, restart growth. And if they're in God's grace and understand it, guess what? They're going to be, spring, they're going to be more fruitful this year than last year because they've allowed more of God into their lives. He's pruned them to produce more fruit. And they produce... You know, a tree produces fruit to feed the birds. It pro- provides shade. <coughs> and guess what? That shade then goes again. But does that make the tree a failure? No. It's just part of the cycle. And so God's idea of growth is quite different. But from, God, from John 15, we can see that exercising our pruding skills... Our fertilising skills, our watering skills doesn't result in fruitfulness simply because we're not the gardener. God is. Similarly, we should be able to tell that we can't actually sit back and leave it all to God. Because even as the gardener who prunes us, waters and feeds us, the fruitfulness actually comes from our willingness to do what God desires of us. See, it doesn't matter how much you prune a vine, you can't make it produce grapes. The vine has to do that. What you're doing as a, as a pruner and as, a, as a, a gardener is unleashing that potential or maximizing that potential, but the vine still has to grow. If you prune it, you water it, and you, you fertilize it, and then put rat sack, well, actually rat sack probably wouldn't do anything, but uh, Roundup or weed killer or whatever it is, the, the vine will die. doesn't matter what you've done with the pruning and the feeding and the watering. If you poison it, it'll still die. And so how do we navigate between these two? Because there's, there's something in us that wants us to do it all on our own. But once we discover the grace of God, we tend to think, oh, well, that's good. Well, let's let God do all the work. Who's with me? <laughs> so there's got to be something that we have to do. So let's take, let's take a, a, an issue here. Let's, take, let's suppose we're a Christian. Let, so we've all, we're all one person at the moment. And we have an anger issue. Now, I've never known any Christians with anger issues. Except for Pastor Sharon, who admitted she had one. Sinful woman. Um, and so, okay, so we're a, we're a Christian with anger issues. So the most common prayer for people who have problems is this one. Lord, I have a problem with anger. Please remove it by your power and give me the power to forgive. Amen. That's a good prayer, isn't it? Because that, that's admitting that we can't do anything about it, so give it to God. God, stop making me angry. No, no, sorry, I didn't mean it that way. I meant, God, stop me being angry. And rather, rather than ask God's power to do it, because guess what? It's not going to work. Sorry for those of you who thought that was a real kicker for you. That, sorry, it's not, not going to work. Rather, we should apply the gospel to ourselves at that point. Because Paul would tell us that uncontrolled bitterness is a result of not living in line with the gospel. It means that though we began with Jesus as our saviour, something has replaced Jesus as our saviour. Instead of believing that Christ is our hope and goodness, we're looking to something else as hope, to some other way of making us feel good and complete. And often we don't realise it. So instead of just hoping that God will remove our anger or simply just exercising willpower saying I will not be angry anymore don't you dare suggest otherwise or I'll beat you 
we need to ask ourselves, if I'm angry and unforgiving, what is it that I think I need? So much other than Jesus. We don't like asking those questions because they can be painful. What is being withheld from me that I feel that I must have it if I'm to feel complete? To have hope, to have self-worth. There's got to be something missing. And if there's something missing and we're not looking to Jesus for it, there's got to be something else that's the problem. And that's usually where anger comes from. It might be that we want comfort and somebody's blocking our comfort. And so guess what? Because we're not looking to Jesus for our comfort, we're looking to circumstances, that person's in the way. They become the target of our anger. Sometimes they don't even know. In fact, most times people don't even know. And you're punishing this person because they are really in the, I am so... And they're going on with their lives, not even realising that Chris is really angry with them. And you've, your blood pressure is going up, your arteries are getting hard, and, and your life expectancy is dropping really dramatically, and they're having a perfectly wonderful life. Getting angry isn't, isn't worth it. So it might be that we worship other people's approval. And so we get angry with anyone who gets in the way of our bid for popularity and respect. I mean, they just might be somebody who's told us the truth. But, oh, no, we don't want to hear that because that might make us unpopular. So we get angry with them. It's really, we're just angry at ourselves. So comfort, approval, control, they're all what we call functional saviours. They're all things that we do that replace Jesus. They serve the function of Jesus, but they're not Jesus. When they're blocked, we get angry. The answer isn't simply trying harder to control our anger. It's actually repenting for the self-righteousness and the lack of rejoicing in the finished work of Christ. It's actually because we don't understand that Jesus has already died for this and that we need to accept that if we let him in, the Spirit of God will work in us to replace what it is we're looking for. It won't replace our anger. It'll actually replace what we're looking for so that that anger has nothing to feed on and it withers. This applies not just to anger. So we can stop being an angry Christian now. And you, you look at the problem you have, the temptations that you have, the suffering that you go through, the problems that you see in your life, in your personality, in your workplace, whatever it is. And that, this applies to all areas. 2 Corinthians 12 Verse 7. This is Paul talking. He says, To keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. Now, I used to think, reading that, that God refused to take away Paul's problem so that he couldn't claim to be better than anyone else, even though God had given him amazing revelations. But now I see that Paul had fallen into the trap that we fall into. He'd asked for God to take away something, whereas God pointed to the fact that it wasn't a question of taking it away. It was a question of Paul looking at what was causing him the problem. And so Paul isn't saying, I've discovered 
that I'm a sinner like everybody else. And so I rejoice in my sin because I've got weaknesses. And it's not like he wants to tell you, I have this, this weakness that you know, I, I can't help from looking on my iPad at um, New Jerusalem porn or something, whatever they had back then. I don't know what. <laughs> he might have had a... Uh, they didn't have iPads? Is he serious? The Apostle Paul didn't have an iPad? Oh, tablets. Yeah, he, 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 he looked at scratchings of naked women on tablets because he had, he had a problem with that sort of thing. He, he's, he's not coming out and saying, look at me, I've got this problem, aren't I good? Because, because I've got this problem, Jesus can work through me because I can't control that. He's not saying that. And we shouldn't say that. Oh, phew, I've got a problem, God's going to deal with it. I, I can admit to everybody I've got the problem and it'll go away. That, that isn't what this is saying. What he's saying is he's recognized that his weakness is what he needs to deal with. It's not the thorn in his flesh. It's the root cause of what's causing that to be a thorn in his flesh. And so he's actually then saying God's grace is sufficient because instead of looking for other answers, the answer is in God's grace. So I, I can be honest about my weakness because in my honesty, God will deal with that weakness. He's not saying I've got this, I'm carrying this weakness. He's saying the thorn in his flesh didn't go away. The desire to sin, the suffering that he was going through didn't fade per se, but he refused to give it the root cause to feed on. We're all too eager to ask God to take things away. And he won't because the more serious thing affecting our lives is the root cause of that problem. It's our lack of self-image because we don't see ourselves as Jesus sees us. It's our, it's our lack of capability to recognize that our, our imperfections are actually not important to God. Because Barry isn't perfect. You know, he's never, he's ne- I know he's never owned up to this, but, you know, and, I, and I hate to out him in, in front of the whole church, but he's not perfect. And God told me this, and he said, you need to tell Barry, because I thought he was. No. God doesn't look for our... Per- Is Barry humble? Yes. Does Barry let God work in his life? Yes. Does Barry struggle with God working in his life sometimes? Yes. He wouldn't be human otherwise because every, every, every one of us does the same thing. Um, I, I read a post from my sister in Sydney um, who complained that, because she's not a Christian, she complained about the fact that she hates it that Christians have this catchphrase that says, we hate the sin but we love the sinner. She says she feels really hurt by that attitude. And I think she's right. It is a terrible attitude to have in specific circumstances because if you think about it, it applies to everybody, even us. That's how God views us. He loves the sinner. He hates the sinner. It isn't a phrase to be directed at a certain group of sinners. Yeah, I know that you're sinning, but, you know, we love you, but hate... 
rubbish. It applies to every single person. None of us are exempt from that sort of thing. So we shouldn't throw it at people. Because if we throw it at people, it will bounce back. And in a way, that this is what Paul's talking about. It's not about looking at a problem and trying to solve it. It's actually looking at what's behind the problem. And always the problem will be. Now this is why Paul says, um, my, you know, my power works best in weakness. It's not actually about going around being weak. It's recognising that even our greatest strengths are minuscule compared to God's least strength, if he has any least strengths. And that if we can just humble ourselves to accept the grace of God in our problems, in our growth, to accept pruning, to, to recognise that there are some areas in our lives that are going to be we're standing there with no leaves on the branches, looking dead, waiting for spring, and not going, come on, God, hurry up with spring. Seasons last a set time and they last the time that God ordains. If you're standing there with your branches bare, waiting for something to happen, be content. Wait. Rest. Read the word. Encourage yourself. Be assured that your value to God does not change from season to season. No matter whether it's winter. Winter? <laughs> Winter, autumn, I tried to combine the two. Wardum, windum, winter and strumming. <laughs> two seasons. Wh- whichever season you're in, winter, summer, autumn, spring, not necessarily in that order. God sees you as growing. You are in a growth season whether you're in winter, summer, autumn or spring. We have to stop looking at growth the way the world looks at it. It's not always visible on the surface. But it's always leading to something that's going to be visible. God only measures our growth by our fruitfulness. Whatever, we are pla- whatever stage of that cycle we're in, we should always be looking. To see, what am I doing to enable God to make me fruitful? Not how am I, how am I going to squeeze out more fruit? I mean, you don't see a lemon tree going, just one more lemon, one more lemon. I think I can do it, I think I can do it. no. The lemon tree just grows lemons. And if you've pruned it right, it will get more lemons. It doesn't have to struggle to be a lemon tree. It is, and it does what it does. And the fruitfulness is determined by how it's pruned. And if we will let ourselves be pruned, if we will let ourselves be fed, if we will let ourselves be watered by the gospel of grace, the word of God, guess what? We're going to be fruitful. Can I have the band up, please? I think the whole band. See, Paul is free to admit his weaknesses, not because he likes his weaknesses, but because he is secure in his relationship with Jesus. To know that as he's honest with his weaknesses, the power of that relationship turns them around. And so I'm wondering, if you're sitting here this morning, can you boast of a weakness in your relationship with Jesus? 
Now you're already struggling with that request. Boast and weakness. Is, I mean, it's like, what do I say? Do I say, yep, yep, I am shocking at reading the Bible. Really struggle with it. Have a lot of trouble. I've just, is that boasting about your weakness? Could be. Why do you, why do you feel you need to read the Bible? Because other people do and you feel guilty. Why do you feel guilty? Why do you struggle to read the book? It's not a question, it's a book like any other. Some people will say, well, I don't like books. I don't, I can't, I don't understand those people because I love books. But even as a book lover, I've actually come to realise that reading the Bible is actually sometimes a struggle. Sometimes it's harder to pick up than the latest science fiction novel. So it's not necessarily just about books. If we struggle, and I'm only using this as as an example because it's a good one, if we struggle with reading the Word of God, there's a deeper problem that's affecting that. Why do you struggle? Is it something about the Word of God that frightens you? Do you find it boring because you've opened it up at Leviticus? You don't treat the Bible like a novel. It isn't to be read from Genesis to Revelation. It's actually there for our inspiration and instruction. Read the Gospel of John. Read the book of James if you're that way inclined. Read the book of Galatians. It's a good book. And examine what it is you struggle with. Is it because as a child your mother read it to you and rammed it down your throat and you didn't understand it and therefore you've got this resistance to it because of something that happened in your past? That can be quite real. The thing is that that's what you need to deal with. You need to start dealing with what is driving that reluctance to read the Bible. Because it's not the Bible. Now I want you to think about the problem that you're having in that light. Do you struggle with prayer? Do you struggle with coming to church? And simple things. Do you struggle with being on time? Guess what? Most people have phones and watches and they all show the same time. So I know that they're not the problem. But there's usually something deeper than just the fact that people are late. These are the issues that Paul's saying we need, we need, to, we need to address. These are what we need to boast about. Not to other people. We need to be able to say to God openly, this is my weakness. This is what I'm struggling with. I need your strength. And it isn't the obvious things. It isn't like, yeah, God, stop me being late. God, make me want to read the Bible. It isn't a question of asking for those things. It's It's actually saying, God, open me up and show me the weaknesses inside of me that I can expose to you and let you start to deal with. 
So I want, what I want you to do right now is I want you to think. You don't have to necessarily have something specific, but if you've got a weakness that you have not been able to find the root cause of, then I want, I want you just to think about that. Everybody close their eyes. And if there's something you're struggling with that you realize is beyond a mere physical, mental or emotional problem that you really know that God can reveal to you something deeper, I just want you to quietly stand to your feet. Everybody else can sit and keep their eyes closed. But I want us to pray together this morning to have God peel back some areas of our lives to actually open up deeper things to enable a pruning to enable something which is actually going to make us grow if you're still sitting just keep your eyes closed Let's pray this morning. With our eyes closed and our heads bowed, let's just lift our hands. Invite the Spirit of God beyond our shields, beyond the barriers that we've put up. Say, Lord, inspect our hearts this morning. Ignore our requests to fix the surface problems. But this morning, Lord, we give you permission to dig deep, to expose to us the root causes of our inability to accept your grace. To actually peel back the barriers in our minds, barriers in our hearts that we've put up to prevent you from pruning what is unnecessary in our lives what is holding us back in our lives what is preventing us from the growth and the fruitfulness that you have destined for our lives and we pray Holy Spirit right now you have our permission to come and do a work in our spirits. Lord, we give you permission right now to trim and to prune because our desire from this moment on is to be fruitful in Jesus' name.
Amen. You guys may all be seated again. Before I close, just one more request. I've talked about a very botanical example this morning. So I'll continue in that, in that vein. Jesus says in the Gospel of John that he is the vine and that we're actually to remain in him to become fruitful. We can actually be grafted onto that vine. We can actually be connected to Jesus by invitation. He will, he will accept any old branch and graft it on if we invite him to actually do that. We can actually say, Jesus, I want to be part of your kingdom, part of your life in relationship with you. A branch on the vine that is Jesus Christ. And we just have to say, okay, I'm that branch, accept me. I'm going to change my life and start a relationship with you. That's the first part of grace in the gospel. That is unmerited favor. We, none of us deserve salvation. But if we're willing to accept it, it's given freely. The second part is what happens after salvation, which is what I've been talking about this morning. But if you have never taken that opportunity to say, I want to be part of the family of God, I want to be part of a relationship with my God, with Jesus Christ himself. I want to give you that opportunity this morning. If that's you, just raise your hand so that I can see it and I'll pray, it with, pray a prayer with you to invite Jesus into your life. Is there anybody here this morning that wants to do that? You can raise your hand nice and high. I'll see it. You can put it down and we can pray together to invite Jesus into your life. It's a great step to take. It's the first step of many to take. One more time, any single person here who wants to make that decision? 